0: Section forty one of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume One, the Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Twelve France by Stanley Leaves, Part Three. Complicated, as is the financial system of France at the end of the Middle Ages, an effort to understand it is not wasted. The life of the Middle Ages, for the most part, escapes all quantitative analysis, and even the detail of anatomy and function must in great measure remain unknown. It is much, then, that we are permitted to know the main outlines of the scheme which supplied the means for the expulsion of the English, for the long struggle with Charles the Bold and Maximilian, and for the Italian campaigns, as well as for the not inconsiderable luxury and display of the French court in this period. It is much that we are able to give approximate figures for the revenue, and to guess what was the weight of the public burdens, and how and on whom they pressed. Moreover, The financial institutions are themselves of rare historical interest, for each anomaly of the system is a mark left on the structure of the government by the history of the nation. The history of French finance in the 14th and 15th centuries can be summed up with relative accuracy in a few words. When Philip the Fair first felt the need of extraordinary revenue, he endeavored to secure the consent of the seigneurs individually for the taxation of their subjects. Afterwards, the estates made grants of imposts, direct and indirect, to meet exceptional emergencies. As the result of masked or open usurpation, the kings succeeded in making good their claim to levy those taxes by royal fiat over the greater part of the kingdom. In the earlier half of the 15th century, it was still usual to secure the consent of the provincial estates of at least the center of France for the taille. Under Charles VII, this impost, the last and the most important, became, definitely and finally, an annual tax, and the fiction of a vote by the estates, whether general or provincial, was almost entirely given up in Langdolp. From that time till the reforms of Francis I, no important change in method was introduced. The screw was frequently tightened and occasionally relaxed. New provinces were added to the kingdom and received exceptional and indulgent treatment, but the main scheme of finance was fixed. Many of its features, indeed, were to remain unaltered till the revolution. The revenue, as collected in the latter half of the 15th and the beginning of the 16th century, is classed as ordinary and extraordinary. The ordinary revenue is the ancient heritage of the kings of France, and comes from the domain lands and rights, being increased, on the one hand, by the acquisitions of the sovereigns, and diminished, on the other, by war and waste, extravagant donations, and, from time to time, by grants of appanages to the members of the royal house. A variety of profits accrue to the king from his position as direct proprietor of land or as suzerain. Rents and fines, reliefs and escheats, sale of wood and payments made in kind form one class of domain receipts, while the official seal required to authenticate so many transactions brings a substantial income and the king still makes a profit by the fines and forfeitures decreed by his prévots and baillis in his local courts. The inheritance of foreigners, oban, and of bastards is yet another valuable right. Régal, francs-fifes, droit d'amortissement are further items in a long list bristling with the technicalities of feudal law, as developed by the kings with a single-minded attention to their own interest. Language, if not public feeling, still insists that this revenue is to be regarded as ordinary, while other revenue is in some sort extraordinary, if not illegitimate. But a king, who should attempt to live upon his ordinary receipts, would be poor indeed. The expenses of collecting the domain are heavy, the waste and destruction of the Hundred Years' War and the extravagant administration of successive kings have reduced the gross returns, until, under Charles Seventh, the Domain is estimated at no more than 50,000 clear annual livres tournois. And although, under Louis XI, it may have risen to 100,000, under Louis Twelfth to 200,000 or more, the total is insignificant compared with the needs even of a Pacific and economical king. Footnote. An exact equation is impossible, but the purchasing power of the Livre Tournois in the later 15th century was probably not much greater or less than that of the pound sterling today. End footnote. To his assistance come the aide, Gabel and Tai. The aide are indirect taxes, formerly imposed by the Estates General, but levied since Charles V by royal authority. There is a twentieth, levied on the sale of goods, and an eighth, sometimes a fourth, on liquors sold retail. There are many kinds of duties and tolls levied on goods in transit, not only on the frontiers of the kingdom, but at the limits of the several provinces and elsewhere. These imports, multiplex as they are, and oppressive as they seem, bring in, from the farmers who compound for them, no more than 535,000 livres tournois in 1461, and in 1514 their return has not risen above 654,000 livres tournois. Languedoc has its separate excise duty on meat and fish, known as the équivalent and collected by the authority of the estates. The Gabelle du Sal, once a local and seigneurial tax, has, since the time of Philippe de Valois, become a perpetual and almost universal royal impost. As a rule, the salt of the kingdom is brought into the royal warehouses, greniers, and left there by the merchants for sale, this taking place in regular turn. A fixed addition for the royal profit is made to the price of the salt as it is sold, and heads of houses are required to purchase a fixed annual minimum of salt. In Languedoc, the tax is levied on its passage from the salt works on the sea-coast, and the black salt of Poitou and Santonge gets off with a tax of twenty-five per cent. But the general principle is the same from a quarter upwards is added to the price of a necessary of life, and the product is, in 1461, about 160,000 livres tonnois, rising in the more prosperous times and with the more accurate finance of Louis Twelfth to some 280,000 livres tonnois. Finally, there is the taille, Fouage hearth or land tax, the gradual process by which the right of the signors to levitate on their subjects had passed into the exclusive possession of the king is too long to admit of being followed here. Here, as in other cases, the estates at first permitted what the king afterwards carried on without their leave. Under the agonizing pressure of foreign and civil war, Charles Seventh was allowed We can hardly say that he was authorized to transform the tie into an annual tax levied at the king's discretion. The normal total was fixed at 1,200,000 livres tournois, but Charles VII established a precedent by imposing cru, or arbitrary additions, to the tax levied for some special emergency the intervention of the estates in Languedoc and outre Seine ceased. In Normandy, it became a mere form. In Languedoc, it was reduced to a one-sided negotiation between the province and the king, in which he might show indulgence, but the deputies could hardly show fight. Yet resistance was not infrequently tried, and was sometimes successful even with the inexorable Louis XI. On the other hand, even in Languedoc, a crew is sometimes ordered and paid without a vote, though never without protest. The tie fell only on the roturier and spared the privileged orders of clergy and noblesse. In Languedoc, the exemption followed the traditional distinction of tenements into noble and non-noble. In Languedoc, the peasant paid if occupying a noble fief. The noble was exempt, although in actual possession of a villain holding. Thus the clergy and the nobility escaped, except in a few cases the direct burden of the principal tax. Speaking generally, they did not escape the burden of the Ed and Gabel, though they had certain privileges. Royal officers for the most part escaped not only tie but Gabel, Many of the principal towns also escaped the former. Such were Paris, Rouen, Laon, Ams, Tours, and many others. There were other inequalities and injustices. Normandy paid one-fourth of the whole tie, a monstrous burden upon a province which had suffered not less than any other from the war. The proportion of one-tenth, fixed on Languedoc, was probably also excessive. In the Recherche of 1491, it was calculated that Langdor paid 19 livres tournois per head, Outre-Seine 27, Normandy 60, and Languedoc 67, an estimate which may be very far from the facts, but gives the result of contemporary impression. Guayenne, when added to the direct dominion of the crown, escaped in large measure the ed and was allowed to vote a small contribution by way of tie Burgundy compounded for her share of tie by an annual vote of about 50,000 livres tournois, contributing also to Aide and Gabelle. Provence was allowed to keep her own estates and to vote a moderate subsidy. The independent and privileged position of Brittany was not altered until after the death of Louis XII. Dauphin was treated with a consideration even greater than was warranted by its poverty. Thus the main tax, unevenly distributed as it was, pressed the more heavily on the cultivators of the less fortunate regions. It is not uncommon to hear of the inhabitants of some district under Charles Seventh or Louis XI preferring to leave home and property rather than bear the enormous weight of the public burdens. The taxable capacity of the people was constantly increasing in the latter half of the fifteenth century, but under Louis XI the burdens increased with more than equal rapidity. The tie increased from 1,035,000 livres tournois in 1461 to some 3,900,000 in 1483. From the pressing remonstrances of the estates in 1484, a great alleviation resulted. The tie was reduced to 1,500,000 livres tournois, and although the expedition of Naples, the war of Brittany and other causes, necessitated a subsequent rise, the figures remained far below the level of Louis XI's reign. Louis the Twelfth was enabled, in spite of his ambitious schemes, to effect further reductions. But the War of Cambrai and its sequel swept away nearly all the advantage that had been gained. The revenue raised in 1514 was as high as the highest raised under Louis the Eleventh, but the ed and domaine were more productive. The tie was less and weighed less heavily. On a more prosperous nation, under Philip the Fair and his successors, down to Charles the Seventh, a considerable though precarious revenue had often been realized by the disastrous method of tampering with the standard of value. In the latter years of Charles the Seventh and under his three successors, this device was rarely employed. A considerable depreciation may be indeed observed between the standard of Louis Twelfth and that of Charles Seventh, But the changes were far less important and frequent than those of the earlier period. A certain revenue was obtained by legitimate seigniorage, and the illegitimate profits of debasement and the like may be almost neglected. The system of collection was still only partially centralized and marked the imperfect union of the successive acquisitions of the monarchy. For the collection and administration both of domains and extraordinary revenue, the older provinces were distributed into four divisions. Western Longuedoil was administered with Guyenne, but the parts of Longuedoil beyond Seine and Yon, when reunited to the crown, about fourteen thirty six, were organized as a separate financial group, Outre Seine. Normandy formed a third and separate administrative area. Administrative Languedoc, that is to say, the three senechaussees of Carcassonne, Beaucaire, and Toulouse, forms the fourth. Picardy, Burgundy, Dauphine, Provence, Roussillon, and of course Brittany, were not included in the general scheme. Milan had its separate financial establishment and maintained 600 lances. In these last-mentioned provinces, the Ordinary and Extraordinary revenue were administered together. Elsewhere, Domain and Extraordinary revenue were separated. For the administration of the Domain, each of the four main divisions had a separate treasurer who was practically supreme in his own district. Under them were, as administrators on the first line, the bailli or sénéchaux. On the second, the prévôt, vicomte, or vigueur. The separation of the receipt from the administration of funds is a principle that runs through the whole system of finance, both ordinary and extraordinary. Accordingly, there is a receveur for each prévôt or other subdivision and a general receiver for the whole domain, known as the chargeur de trésor. But the actual collection of cash at the central office was in large measure avoided, partly by charging the local officer of receipt with all local expenses and partly by a system of drafts on local offices adopted for the payment of obligations incurred by the central government. The beneficiary presented his draft to the local receveur or grenetier or discounted it with a broker who forwarded it to his agent for collection. The same plan was adopted in the extraordinary finance and made an accurate knowledge of the financial position and correct supervision of the accounts, a matter of extreme difficulty. Contentious business was either settled by the bailli or prévôt, or by a central tribunal of Domain Finance, the Chambre du Trezor, or, in some cases, by the Chambre des Comptes or the Parlement. The same regions of France were similarly divided for extraordinary finance into four généralités. At the head of each were two généraux, one Pour le fait des finances, the other pour le fait de la justice. The four generaux de la justice met together to form the Cour des aides, an appeal court for contentious questions arising out of the collection of the extraordinary revenue. There are other Cour des aides at Montpellier for Languedoc and at Rouen for Normandy. Each général de finances was supreme in the administration of his own généralité. Associated with each général, there was a receveur général who guarded the cash and was accountable for it. In Languedoc, the partition and collection of taille and the collection of Ed was managed by the estates of the province. The other three généralités, except Gaillens, which was administered by commissioners, were divided into élétions, a term reminiscent of the earlier system, when the estates collected the sums they had voted and elected the supervising officers. The élu, who stood at the head of each élection and whose duty it was to apportion the tie over the several parishes, to let out the éd and to act as judges of first instance in any litigation that might arise were now, as they had long since been, the nominees of the king. Beside them stood the receveur, who, as a rule, handled the product both of Tai and Ed. As a general rule, each receveur, whether of ordinary or extraordinary finance, was doubled with a comptroller whose business it was to check his accounts and fortify his honesty. The Ed were let out at farm. The actual collection of the taille was carried out by locally appointed collectors, who received five percent for their trouble. The assessment on individuals was the work of locally elected assieurs. The collection of the gabelle was in the hands of special officers, each Grenier had a receiver called Grenetier and the inevitable contre All accounts of the area so circumscribed were inspected and passed by a superior body, the Chambre des Comptes. Separate courts were also set up at Nantes, Dijon, Aix, and Grenoble for their respective provinces. The Chambre des Comptes of Paris was differently composed at different times, but consisted in 1511 of two presidents and ten maîtres de compte. It had power to impose disciplinary penalties on financial officers and claimed to be a sovereign court exempt from the controlling jurisdiction of the Parlement, but this claim was not always successfully maintained. All alienations of domain and pensions for more than a brief period of years had to be registered in the Chambre des Comptes, a form which gave this court the opportunity to protest against, and at any rate to delay, injudicious grants. As will be seen, this financial system by no means lacked checks and safeguards, rather perhaps it erred on the side of over-elaboration. Although an immense improvement is perceptible since the time of Charles VI, there can be little doubt that the system suffered from considerable leakage. The men employed in the king's finance were mostly of bourgeois rank. Jacques Cour, Guillaume and Pierre Brissonnet, Jacques de Bon, Étienne Chevalier, Jean Bourret are among the most famous names. In many cases they were related to each other by blood or marriage, and they all, almost without exception, became very rich. In some cases this need be thought no shame. Thus Jacques Cour no doubt owed his wealth to the inexhaustible riches of Oriental trade. But, as a rule, servants only grow rich at the expense of their master and it is a sign of evil augury when the servant lends his master money, as, for instance, Jacques de Bon did on a large scale. This great financier was in the ambiguous position of a banker, who himself discounted the bills just signed by him for his king. The business was legitimate and lucrative because of its very hazardousness, but it comported ill with a position of supreme financial trust and responsibility. Not only was the system of control imperfect, and the tradition of honesty unsatisfactory, but the scheme lacked unity of direction. There was no single responsible financial officer, Jacques dubon, Sieur de Saint fifteen ten to twenty three enjoyed a certain priority of dignity, but exercised no unifying authority. Once a year the treasurers and généraux, messieurs des finances, met in committee and drew up in concert the budget for the year. So much being expected as receipt from Domain, Ed and Gabelle, and so much anticipated as expenditure, then the tie must be so much to meet the balance and to a certain extent the Council of State kept its hand on finance, assisted at need by the financial officers specially convened. But unity of management and administration was conspicuously wanting. The expenditure of the four kings cannot, on the whole, if tried by a royal standard, be called extravagant. The most questionable item is that of pensions. Pensions were not only used to reward services and gratify courtiers, but were also given on a large scale to princes of the blood and considerable nobles. Historically, such pensions may be regarded as some compensation for the loss of the right of raising Ed and Tai in their own domain, which had once belonged to personages holding such positions, but which since 1439 had remained categorically abolished. With the fall of Charles the Bold and the absorption of Brittany, the last examples of princes enjoying such rights, unquestioned, disappeared. Politically, such pensions were intended to conciliate possible opponents and enemies, for the great princes though stripped by law of their chief powers, still possessed, in spite of the law, sufficient influence and authority to raise a war. How strong such influence might be, we see in 1465, when not only Brittany and Burgundy, but Bourbon, Amagnac, and dalbret found their subjects ready to follow them against the king. Such pensions were an old abuse, Louis XI found in them one of his most powerful political engines and distributed them with a lavish hand. The pensions bill rose under him from about 300,000 livres tournois to 500,000. In addition, there were the great English pensions and the pensions to the Swiss. The totals were probably not much less under Charles Eighth. But Louis the Twelfth reduced them at one time so low as one hundred five thousand, and seems to have effected a substantial average diminution. However, the practice of charging pensions on local sources of revenue, especially the regnier of salt, prevents the whole magnitude of this waste from coming into view. The expenses of the court, largely military rose under Louis XI from about 300,000 to 400,000 livres tournois and seemed to have been reduced by half or more by Louis XII. Military expenses are, of course, the chief item of the budget. The constantly increasing expenditure of Louis XI is chiefly due to the cost of the army. The establishment rose from 2,000 lances to 3,884 in 1483, when there was also a standing army of 16,000 foot at Pont de l'Arche in Normandy, including 6,000 Swiss. The cost of the army on a peace footing is not less in this year than 2,700,000 livres tournois. The difficulties of Louis the Eleventh were very great, and the result of his military expenditure on the whole Commensurate with the sacrifices, but he seems, in his later years, to have been driven by nervous fear to excessive precaution. The military budget of the succeeding kings was conspicuously less. The War of Naples was chiefly waged on credit, and at the death of Charles the Eighth, a deficit of one million four hundred thousand remained unliquidated but in no year can the totals of Louis XI have been passed. Perhaps in 1496 they may have been reached. Louis Twelfth carried on his wars very economically until the deserved disasters of the War of Cambrai. The tie of these years speaks for itself. It rises steadily from 2,000,000 livres tournois in 1510 to 3,700,000 in 1514, and the father of his people left an additional deficit of a million and a half. The new conditions, political and social, of the 14th and 15th centuries in France had long demanded a reorganization of the army. Service by tenure had lost its meaning since, in the time of Philip the Fair, the practice of paying the contingents had been adopted. There is little that is feudal in the organization of the French army during the Hundred Years' War, much more that is anarchical, and a little that is royal. At most, the feudal aristocracy supplies some of the cadre in which the troops are embodied. But the aristocracy is not a necessary but an accidental feature of the scheme. The organization of the host and of its units does not follow the lines of the feudal hierarchy. The king is a rallying point, giving rise to a delusive sense of unity of direction. Chance and the love of fighting accomplish the rest. For a few years, the centralizing purpose of Charles V warranted better hopes, which perished with his death. As the war continues, the professional soldier the professional captain, becomes all in all. This soldier or captain may be a noble, born to the art of arms, but side by side with him are many adventurers sprung from the lower orders. They are glad to receive pay if pay is forthcoming. If not, they will be content with loot. In any case, they are lawless, landless, homeless mercenaries who live upon the people and are the terror rather of friend than of foe. This lack of even feudal discipline in France is the cause of the success of the better organized armies of England. It is also the principal cause of the horrors of the endless war. When a respite intervenes, the country knows no peace till the mercenaries are sent to die abroad, in Castile, in Lorraine, or against the Swiss. To have put an end to this misrule is the conspicuous service of Charles Seventh and his successors. In 1439, on the occasion of a great meeting of the estates at Orléans, the king and his council promulgated a notable edict. The number of captains was henceforth to be fixed, and no person was under the gravest penalties to entertain soldiers without the king's permission. A pathetic list follows of customary outrages, which are now forbidden, and the captains are made responsible for the good conduct of their men. The senescals and bailiffs are given authority, if authority suffices, to punish any military crimes whatsoever and wheresoever committed. The financial side of the measure is indicated by a clause prohibiting all lords from levying tithes in their lands without the king's leave, impeding the collectors of the king's tie, or collecting any increment on their own account. The king intends to have an army, to have the only army, to have it disciplined and obedient, and to have the money for its pay. Unfortunately, the revolt known as the Pragerie, which broke out soon after, impeded the development of this plan. The Armagnacs were then sent to be let blood in Lorraine and Switzerland. The warlike operations of 1444 having been carried out, the scheme took effect in the following year. Fifteen companies of 100 lances were instituted, each under a captain appointed by the king. It would seem that five more were to be supported by Langtok, Each lance was to consist of one man-at-arms, two archers, a swordsman, a valet, and a page, all mounted and armed according to their quality. The page and the valet were the servants of the man-at-arms, but the valet at least was a fighting man. The method of organization is strange, but has an historical explanation. It had long been customary for the man-at-arms to take the field ACCOMPANIED BY SEVERAL ARMED FOLLOWERS, THE ORDINANCE ADOPTED THE EXISTING PRACTICE. ITS EFFECT WAS TO ESTABLISH SEVERAL DIFFERENT SORTS OF CAVALRY, LIGHT AND HEAVY, CAPABLE OF MANEUVERING SEPARATELY, AND USEFUL FOR DIFFERENT PURPOSES. BUT TRADITION REQUIRED THAT THEY SHOULD BE GROUPED IN LANCES, AND IT WAS LONG BEFORE THE ADVANTAGE OF SEPARATING THEM WAS UNDERSTOOD for a time the superstitious imitation of english tactics made the men-at-arms dismount for the shock of battle but they learned their own lesson from experience and found that few could resist the weight of armored men and heavy horses charging in line at first the new companies were quartered on the several provinces and the task of providing for them was left to the local estates but before long the advantage of regular money payment was perceived and a tie was levied to provide monthly pay at the rate of thirty-one livres per lance. The force of standing cavalry so formed became the admiration of Europe. Their ranks were mainly filled with noblemen, whose magnificent tradition of personal courage and devotion to the practice of arms made them the best possible material. In four campaigns they mastered and expelled the English. In Brittany, in Italy, on a score of fields, they proved their bravery, their discipline, their skill. They had undoubtedly the faults of professional soldiers, but their virtues no body of men ever had in a higher degree. Even the moral tone of an army that trained and honored Bayard could not be altogether bad. Fortunately, perhaps for Europe, the King's efforts to form an adequate force of infantry were not equally successful. In 1448, each parish was ordered to supply an archer fully armed for fighting on foot. The individual chosen was to practice the bow on feast days and holidays and to serve the king for pay when called upon. In return, he was freed from the payment of tie, whence the name Frank's Archers. Later, the contingent was one archer to every fifty fou. And under Louis XI, it was reckoned that there were some 16,000 men in this militia. Four classes were then differentiated. Pikemen, halberdiers, archers, crossbowmen. They were organized in brigades of 4,000 under a captain-general and bands of 500 under a captain. They did not, however, prove efficient, and in 1479 disgraced themselves a Gingas. Louis XI then dismissed them and established a standing army of 16,000 foot at Pont-de-Larche in Normandy, of whom 6,000 were Swiss. To meet the expense and provide regular pay, an extra tie was imposed. The cost of this army led to its disbandment in the next reign, and Charles Eighth tried to revive the institution of free archers. Free archers fought on both sides in the wars of Brittany, but they were not taken to Naples, and although they are still mentioned occasionally, they saw no further service in the period now under review. Louis Twelfth relied largely on Swiss and afterwards on Germans, but he also organized bands of French aventuriers under the command of gentlemen. Those who guarded the frontier of Picardy were known as the Bande de Picardie. Levies were also made in Gascony, Brittany, Dauphine, and Piedmont, but they were usually disbanded on the conclusion of a war. For garrison duty, a force of veterans was kept on foot known as Mortepe. But the infantry arm of the service continued to be unsatisfactory the general levy of all those bound to bear arms, known as *bann et ariers was not infrequently called out by Louis XI, but proved disorderly and unserviceable. The artillery was first organized under Charles VII by the Brothers Bureau. The French artillery was distinguished by its comparative mobility and discharged iron shot. It was under the command of the Grand Maître de la Thierry, and served as a model to the rest of Europe, we find under Louis Eleventh and afterwards an organized force of sappers. The navy depended still in large measure on the impressment of merchant vessels and seamen. Normandy, Provence, and afterwards Brittany were the chief recruiting grounds. In the Italian wars, we find the French kings chiefly dependent on Genoa. Or galleys, but under Louis the Twelfth, a few war vessels were built and owned by the king. The French mounted heavy guns on large ships with excellent results. Everywhere we find invention at work, directed for the most part to practical construction and consolidation. Commerce was stirring. The French were directing their attention to the Oriental trade in which Jacques Cour and the Bon family founded their fortunes. Breton sailors went far afield, traded with the canaries and Madeira, and were fishing cod off Iceland, perhaps on the banks of Newfoundland, long before the recognized discovery of the New World. But internal trade was more prosperous than foreign In spite of paralyzing tariffs on the frontiers of provinces and the myriad pillage which the kings in vain attempted to keep down, steady progress was made. The misfortunes of Bruges and Ghent, Liege and Dinant left a gap in home markets which French traders partly succeeded in filling. The silk trade took root at Tours and Lyon and was encouraged by Louis XI. Reviving agriculture stimulated commercial and industrial life in many a country town, and small fortunes were frequently made. The marvelous recuperative power of France was never more clearly seen than in the half-century after the English Wars. The middle of the 15th century saw a national revival of art in France. French miniaturists had long explored the resources and perhaps reached the limits of their charming art. The ours of the Duke of Berry, dating from the early 15th century, are hardly to be surpassed. But Jean Fouquet, 1415 to 80, was not only a master among masters of miniature, but a painter prized even in Italy. His work is interesting as showing the taste for classical architecture in works of fancy long before it had begun to influence the constructions of French builders. It is probable that the competition of Italian painters for the patronage of the Great, which begins immediately after the Italian Wars, checked the growth of an indigenous French school of painting, which might have fulfilled the promise of French miniaturists. In sculpture, a school arose at Dijon under Charles VI, which is original and fruitful. In this school was trained Michel Colomb, who died in 1512. His masterpiece is perhaps the tomb of Francis II at Nantes. Gothic ecclesiastical architecture had lost itself in the meaningless elaborations of the decadent flamboyant, but in domestic architecture, the corps de métier were still capable of producing such masterly works as the house of Jacques-Cour at Bourges, and, in the reign of Louis XI, the castles of Langeais and Le Plessis-Bourret, still standing solid and reminiscent of the necessities of defense. Amboise, of a still later date, shows the same characteristics. Gradually, classical influence begins to modify first detail, then construction. The results may be seen in Louis XII's part of the Castle of Blois, but the golden age of French Renaissance architecture is the reign of Francis I, when first the castle put off its heavy armor and assumed the likeness, grace, and gaiety so well known to travelers on the Loire. In literature, the excellence of the best is so great that it makes us the less willing to remain content with the dull mediocrity of the mass. Charles of Orléans' melancholy musical verse fixes in perpetuity the fragrance of the passing ideals of chivalry. Villon, closely conversant with the pathos and humors of the real, veils it gracefully and slightly in transparent artificialities. Comine, Naïve for all his dignified reserve, cold wisdom and experienced cynicism ranks alike with those who have rediscovered the art of history, and with those who have assisted to perfect French prose. Chastellain, burdened with cumbrous rhetoric and prone to useless sermonizing, can on occasion tell a stirring tale, and proves his faults to be not of himself but of his school." For the rest, in poetry and prose, whether the tedious allegories learnt from the Roman de la Rose prevail, or the not less tedious affectations of classical imitation, or the labored tricks of a most unhappy school of verse, there are few names that deserve to be remembered. In the world of thought, the French clung longer than other nations to the traditions of scholasticism, but the school of Nicholas of Cusa, which represents a transitional movement from medieval to Renaissance philosophy, had its followers in France, of whom the first was Jacques Lefebvre d'Étaples and the most distinguished Carolus Bovius. To deal adequately with the men whose accumulated endeavors restored order, unity and prosperity to France after the English wars would need a volume, not a chapter. Many of them—humble, obscure, energetic, faithful—escape the notice of the historian. Valuable monographs have been written upon some, but no adequate memorial exists of the most powerful French minister of the time, Georges Damboise, without whom nothing of moment, whether good or bad, was done during the best years of Louis XII. One figure stands out above all others— Louis XI, of the four kings, the only one who both reigned and governed. Whether we condemn or whether we condone the remorseless rigor with which that king pursued his public ends, whether we regret the absolute monarchy which he established, or accept it as having been the only possible salvation of France, we cannot deny to him the name of great. Great he was in intellect, and in tenacity of purpose, great in prosperity and even greater in misfortune. Whatsoever he did had its determined end, and that end was the greatness of France, or, if the expression be preferred, of the French monarchy. The universal condemnation which he has incurred may be ascribed chiefly to two causes. The unrelenting sternness with which he visited treachery in the great and the severity of the taxation which he found it necessary to impose. The world was shocked by the fate of Jean d'Armagnac, Jacques de Nemours, Louis de Saint-Paul, Cardinal Ballou, and by the cynical methods which achieved their ruin. Looking back without passion, we pronounce their sentence just. The burden of taxes was cruel, and the stories we read in Branton and elsewhere of lawless and inhuman executions are probably not without foundation. These methods may be supposed to have been required to bring the enormous taxes in. The Estates of 1484 speak of 500 executions for offenses against the Gabelle. We need not accept the number. The Estates believed many strange tales but the suggestion is instructive and helps to explain the legends of apparently meaningless slaughter wrought upon the humble. In the struggle for life and death in which France was engaged, those taxes and perhaps those executions saved her. The king's crimes were national crimes, and national crimes are not to be judged by the standards of domestic morality. The France of Louis XII, Is the justification of Louis the Eleventh. End of section forty one. Recording by Linda Johnson.